Well, hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome back to The Daily Evolver. Today, I am joined by Dr. Warren Farrell, who has co-authored with John Gray, who's the men are from Mars, women are from Venus guy, if you remember. Uh, uh, they've co-authored co a new book called The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. And uh, Warren and I actually talked yesterday, but I wanted to take a minute to introduce you and sort of the themes of our conversation, because uh, I think it's really a great example again, of an integral sensibility coming online in, um, you know, in cultural evolution. So see if you agree. Uh, some of you may know of Warren Farrell. He's been an A-list author and been on all of the, you know, Oprah, uh, recurring guests in Oprah's actually, and uh, been uh, reviewed in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and a lot of the big magazines. And is most famous for his book, uh, The Myth of Male Power which think about that. And uh, he also advised the Obama administration when they were considering uh, a White House counsel on boys. Uh, and and he's, only, he's the only man in the US to have been elected three times to the board of the National Organization for Women in New York City. So already you can get sort of an integral sensibility from this guy. He's advocating for both men and women and he's pointing out, the and this is the boy crisis, he's pointing out the deficiencies in male development that are pretty significant, particularly with kids, uh, without blaming the advances made by women. And I, I like that. Uh, so the boy crisis, falling behind academically, socially, in terms of health, uh, crime, suicide, life expectancy, behavioral problems, medication for behavioral problems. And, um, and, and I think that uh, the thesis of the book is really well stated by one of the people who endorsed it, who's a hero of mine actually, Gail Sheehy. Uh, remember Gail Sheehy, Gail Sheehy who wrote, wrote passages about the predictable stages of development in adult life and I, I read that book, a lot of my friends did back in the 80s. It's a big book, it was about development, it was all pre-integral to me, but you know, really hit the sweet spot. And as she said, and as an activist in the women's movement, I'm proud of expanding life choices for our daughters, but no one has done the same for our sons until now. And, um, and that's what um, Warren Farrell and John Gray have done in this book. And um, let's see. Yeah, I think, you know, just the basic idea is that the women's movement has, has really uh, opened a lot of, you know, world space for women, They're no longer confined to the home and to various roles. But uh, there hasn't been a commensurate in expansion of options and identities for, for men and boys. And uh, that's little noticed, and, but it does have a pernicious effect. And that's what Warren's really focusing on here and trying to move the ball forward for both sexes and all sexes and all of humanity. So anyway, let's get to the recording. It's about an hour. And I start by asking him uh, about how his in integral sensibility, you know, he's, he's been a friend of Ken Wilber's. He, they have a couple conversations published. Uh, how his integral sensibility led him to thinking about this problem and to some, I think, really very interesting solutions, which he has and will share on this podcast. So here is Warren Farrell and me yesterday. I'm always sort of uh, deeply sort of disturbed when something is, when there's a puzzle with pieces missing. And I'm because I was on the board of the director, board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City. I'm and I'm sort of a sensitive type of guy. I'm sort of naturally was attracted to women making progress, and I'm so delighted that 
the women's movement has expanded options for women even beyond the ways I could have foreseen when I was a kid. You know, it's it's so crucial that um, that women are involved in team sports and individual sports and the, and not just the equal pay for equal work and um, for reasons that would take a little bit more depth to mention. Um, that is the gap that we call the gender gap is not nearly what it appears to be. Um, that just, I ended up having to write a whole book on that to explain that issue, um, but the but but for me. I'm very um, just desirous of making sure that we don't develop ideologies that almost always create um, simple solutions to complex problems, uh, which are almost invariably the wrong ones. And then with an ideology, we tend to close our mind and march too far in the direction of that ideology because we tend to uh, enhance our simplistic thinking um, about something. And unfortunately, the women's movement has gone from this enormously um, uh, positive um, impact of opening options for women to oftentimes um, doing a misanalysis of what the world was about with men and women versus the um, civil rights movement and Marxism. I'll explain that in a moment. And they've also, so they've tended to undermine the uh, undervalue the family and demonize men. And those two mistakes of the women's movement have been the result of starting um, with the women's movement at a point in history when there were groups of oppressors and oppressed. The civil rights movement was based on, there were the oppressors of the landowners and there were the oppressed, uh, uh, the oppressed and the oppressed of slaves. That was an accurate um, division. And then Marxism came as, a, as an attack on the family, but there was the oppressor group uh, that were, you know, that, that were the rich and, um, and bourgeois. And then there was the oppressed and the, um, and those two, uh, so there was a, there was a hierarchy that was created. And because men were making more money in the workplace, um, the feminist movement moved that hierarchy over to men and women saying, well, men make more money and for the same work, which was not quite true. It was at one point, but it has no longer been true for quite a while. Um, and the, um, and, and men are the oppressors and women are the oppressed. And that was a complete misinterpretation. Um, so if you go into any women's studies course, the, the theory will be um, that we live in a, a world dominated by a patriarchy, uh, which, is, uh, makes, which is dominated by men who make rules uh, to benefit men at the expense of women. Well, that's where the women's movement really went off base. The, women's, the world was not dominated by a patriarchy. It was dominated by the, um, by, by the need to survive. And to survive, our grandparents and our parents, um, women learned that you needed to produce children if you were, and, we, and they were called more feminine if they were mothers and they had children. And they focused their lives on those children and sacrificed for their children for the purpose of making their children's lives even better than theirs. And what the, what the women's movement completely missed is that dads did their parallel thing, that it was a movement of roles. In order to survive, dads didn't say, I will follow the glint in my eye and I will become a Ken Wilber or Warren Farrell who will bring new thoughts into the world and a new philosophy. That will be the glint in my eye. No, my father said to me, Warren, you cannot be an author. Uh, authors do not reliably make money over a period of time. You cannot support a family as an author. And so I had to fight, and 99.9% you know, .9 of kids paid attention to that. And when they were a man who was going to be a father, uh, they learned that now is the time to give up the glint in my eye, to give up my passion, give up my desire, give up the control over my life to be an artist or a writer or an actor, because artists and writers and actors are called starving artists for a reason, and most actors are called waiters. And so you don't make much money doing those things. But if you're an engineer or a hedge fund manager and you do something that or sell product X nationwide, you'll probably make a lot of money and, and you as a dad can then support your children to have more options than you had. But options was not the name of the game for any of our grandparents. Rights were not the name of the game. Privilege was not the name of the game. The name of the game was obligations and responsibilities. The women's movement completely missed that. So they had a non-integral approach. The integral approach would have been to understand that both men and women um, did their own roles and gave up 
uh, women sacrificed their careers if they had an interest in careers, and men made sacrifices not of careers, but in careers. We did jobs like you know, a man learned that if he was really interested in 18th century French literature, it was not okay to go to college in 18th century French literature because he'd make more as a garbage collector than he would as an 18th century French literature major or as an author or so on. So he didn't think to himself and his parents wouldn't even allow him to think and particularly his father wouldn't allow him to think, I want you to do what fulfills you because if the father intuitively understood that the road to high pay is a toll road and the road to fulfillment, people who work in fulfillment occupations make less, not more. It's not okay when you're a father to make less. And so what the women's movement called privilege, the men who make more money, they didn't understand that the road to high pay is a toll road and that those were men who were willing and successful and competent enough to make more money. And what the result was, was a father's catch 22. Fathers learn to earn money, uh, to, I'm sorry, fathers learn to love the family by being away from the love of their family. And no one asked the father any more than historically anyone asked mother, what do you want to do? It was, the, it was survival dictating what you need to do. And that's where the women's movement became um, enormously, not only non-integral, but it reinforced the, the sense of entitlement by suggesting that men were entitled to, that males, especially white males, felt entitled to their jobs. Well, you go to any, go and take a transportation anywhere, walk outside wherever you are now, uh, call for an Uber or a Lyft. 90% chance, more than 90% chance that a male will pick you up. Ask that male how many hours a week he's working. Um, he's usually working 60, 70 hours a week. Ask him if he's doing that because he has male privilege. And you get a little bit of a sense of, you know, what, what working is about for, for men. All right. So from, from a, 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 a developmental perspective, using the stages of development, um, I think what you're arguing and what I agree with is that human beings have always organized themselves in some optimal situation that benefit both men and women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that arrangement has <clears throat> evolved over the years. <clears throat> and there, um, there's uh, roles, sex roles that our ancestors had, mm -hmm. that our grandparents had, that our parents had, that we have, that have evolved and have evolved together. Exactly. And, and where, the, where a differentiation I would make, and, and I'm curious if you agree, is the women's movement that is sort of part of modernity and sort of the, an expression of all men, people are created equal and that there should be equality of opportunity mm -hmm. versus the green women's movement or the postmodern women's movement that is more um, along the lines of the story of oppression. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and, and that feminism has to be a fix for oppression. Mm -hmm. And that um, the problems of history are that men have dominated women and have dominated each other. Yeah. And it's, you know, time for men to get their comeuppance. And as integralists, we want to say, wait a second, there's a, there's a deep truth to the green realization of the in sort of interiority of how our sex roles get you know, enacted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But from an integral perspective, we want to see that we were all players in the game every step of the way. Yes. And that there have been upsides and downsides for both sexes, and they're not even that relevant, mm -hmm. except that when we see that there is... Um, you know, somebody left behind. Uh, the the first, first wave of feminism saw that women were being left behind. It was mm -hmm. obvious, mm -hmm. especially after World War II and how you got to keep them down on the farm and all of that stuff. And then, um, and, and, and now um, we see that boy, boys and men, there was, they were left out of the equation because they were seen as the oppressors. Yes, exactly. And, and so 
it's still a little bit puzzling to the average person listening to this to say, well, it's very clear to me that women were left out of the workplace, they were left behind. So, and that means that they didn't have power. Um, and so you really have to, and, but without, without understanding that we never even asked men when the children, once children were born, what do you men want to do? Well, it'd be absurd. Yes, it was what we were doing then. Exactly. And, and yeah. so the first- But it's what we can do now. And what I love about your book is that you actually envision a coming world where men are able to expand their playing field. Yes. And, and I'm saying to, to women, I'm saying single, uh, I'll go by, maybe back in a, in a few moments to where, where and how the boy crisis came about. Um, but the, 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 well, actually, let me start there because it'll all fit together a little bit better. Uh, I started working on the boy crisis 11 years ago. And, and I began, one of the things I saw was that in all 60 plus of the largest developed nations, that boys were falling significantly behind girl, girls in every academic area, and especially in reading and writing, which were the two biggest predictors of success. And so that concerned me, but I then asked the question, what, was, what do developed nations have in common? And I saw that what developed nations had in common is that they had permission for two things. One was for divorce, um, so because they had enough luxury to be able to afford divorce. And secondly, enough luxury to offer women freedom to be able to have children without being married. So then I looked at these two groups carefully. And in these two groups, there was an enormous gap between the, the, the boys, especially, who had father involvement after divorce versus those who didn't. Now, after divorce, these boys that had father involvement didn't do as well as boys in intact families, but at least they came fairly close to that. Boys without father involvement did terribly as a rule on more than 70 different measures of success, um, physical health, mental health, um, the ability to get jobs, um, failure to launch um, was enormously greater among these boys. The other group, the group that of, of women who had children without being married. The theory was that a lot of these women were living with men and so six of one, half a dozen of the other about whether they were married or not. As it turns out that only uh, about, even among the group of people who had, women who had children who were living with a man, 40% uh, uh, of them did not see the children at all or very minimally after two years. So the, the it, living together was not the equivalent of being married. There was a greater commitment to stay with the children for a longer period of time um, when there was marriage. And then among the women who had children without being living with a man, there was an enormous group of, chi of children who didn't have a father involvement, very minimal or none. Because we were demonizing men instead of talking about men as being part of the patriarchy, there also was not an effort for the women who brought up children by themselves to make sure that the school system that they got involved with had a significant number of male figures. Um, you don't want to have a significant number of male figures if you're demonizing men. Um, and sort of you know, saying that basically women are the civilizing factor and men have to learn to be more like women. Well, men do have to learn to be more like women. And also men and women have to learn to appreciate the contributions that men have historically make, made that are more testosterone based, that are more uh, heroic based. And so all of these things need to, uh, you know, men, men died so women would live throughout all of history. Uh, every generation had its wars and its wars did not send women off to die in anywhere near the numbers that they sent men off to die. Well, I but, love what you said in your book, you know, and it's sort of a, a nice a basic pattern of history. Men made war and money and women made children and the household. Mm -hmm. And that was the deal. Yes. And, 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 you know, all things flowed from that. And it was a good deal for the time. Yes. Yes. And so people would often say, or some feminists say, well, so men are the problem. They make wars. And, but let's look at that. Um, is that the problem? Did you, do you want to, did you want to have your, our sons not go off to defend the North America against Hitler, most of the world against Hitler? Um, do, you, do you wish to be speaking um, German and, and Nazi modality at this point in time? 
And you know, do, do, you, do if you live in the United States, do you want to just leave, just kill yourself? Because after all, you were the oppressors that came over here and oppressed the Native Americans. Um, so, and did women in the past want to marry men who were sensitive, loving, caring, and um, but uh, wanted to be just artists? Those people were mostly in the past gay males because those gay males didn't feel that they had to have the responsibility um, to earn money to support more than themselves. And so they had the luxury of being the philosophers and the artists and the historians of, of our time. And so the important thing about all of this is that what we've come to under, uh, under not even ask about questions wise is why do we need dads? Why do they contribute, you know, we haven't asked ourselves what happens when a child is not brought up by dads. We haven't looked at the common denominators of 26 out of 27 of the major mass shootings since 1949. That is, my major, I mean eight or more killed in one mass shooting. The common denominator of 26 out of 27 is that they had minimal or no father involvement. We don't look at the common denominator of ISIS recruits. Again, no father involvement, not just the boys, but those girls who were, or females that were ISIS recruits as well. Uh, we don't ask ourselves the question, what if I'm, if I'm in an intact family, what do fathers, what do I have to make sure that I respect about a father's likely contribution? And so for example, a mom and a dad um, typically will, um, if, if the child is having dinner, uh, we'll say some version of, um, sweetie, um, you can have your ice cream as soon as you finish your peas. Moms and dads will say pretty much the exact same thing. Um, the children will respond in pretty much the exact same way. They'll test the boundaries, have a few peas, and then say, can I have my ice cream now? And, um, and mom, but the difference is in moms versus dads' reactions. As a rule, moms will be more likely to say, sweetie, um, I said you can't have your ice cream until you finish your peas, but I'll tell you what, I know it's been a stressful day for you. So if you have a couple more um, peas, then you can have your ice cream. Dad will say some version, sometimes not even verbally, just sometimes non-verbally, some version of, uh, um, sweetie, uh, you can't have your ice cream until you finish your peas. You know the deal, I know the deal, and you know that I know the deal. Um, and so the kid will often say, you're so mean. And dad will say, well, you can continue to complain and then there'll be no ice cream tomorrow night either. So the kid with the father is much more likely to settle on the understanding that there's no option but to finish your peas, that is do what you have to do in order to get your ice cream, that is do what you want to do. Whereas with mom, the child learns uh, because the mom's greater sensitivity leads her to sort of being a bit more lenient most frequently. And the child learns, ah, I told mom that I had a tough day. I told mom that it was really hard being divorced, uh, not having dad around all the time. Mom felt my being able to say that. And as a result, I was able to manipulate a better deal. And so the child tunes into its ability, what creates the ability to manipulate that better deal. And here's the result of that. The child growing up with dad, only 15% of the time has ADHD issues. Child growing up primarily with mom, 30% of the time has ADHD issues. So let's connect the dots here. The child with the dad learns it has no option but to pay attention to doing what it needs to do to get what it wants. With mom, it learns it doesn't have to pay attention. It ends up with an attention deficit but a manipulation increase. And so then take that to school. The, the child goes to school and with the, attention, with, uh, with the attention deficit, it doesn't know how to postpone gratification. So it starts, has a homework assignment, gets sidetracked with texts, with maybe a video game that it wants to play, never gets the homework done. And on the one hand is satisfied temporarily, it got its ice cream, but on the other hand, it, didn't, it was not satisfied in the long run because he's now seeing that the teachers aren't respecting him or her as much. Um, students, uh, peer group is not respecting him or her as much. And, and as guys get to be male, female oriented, he learns that the girls do not choose losers. They don't, you know, they, you're, if you're not a football player or a student body president or um, getting really good grades, if you're not in some way performing, girls are not usually interested in you. And so the boy becomes depressed. He starts withdrawing. He may get into identifying through a hero vicariously in a video game, become addicted to that video game. 
a male-female time. He doesn't feel he has can have a real woman he goes, goes out with, so he gets addicted to video porn. Uh, the video porn increases his dopamine only when he has a new level of excitement. Um, of, of a real-life female comes into his life, feels objectified by having to provide this real level, this new level of exalted excitement that she isn't good enough by herself. She withdraws in disgust. The boy feels more ashamed um, and withdraws into more video games. And that's sort of the cycle that often happens when we don't appreciate. And this is just one of about a dozen contributions I talk about. Damn, boy Warren, you're depressing me. <laughs> Jesus. It is, it is. But well, but is, let, let me just say, you know. We can appreciate that there is something that we have to offer. Well, and, and one of the things I love about your book is that you talk about that you know, what you just talked about is the upside of the down, uh, the downside of the upside. Mm -hmm. The upside is that we live in this amazing modern society where we don't have to work so hard. Yes. But our fathers, grandfathers, and ancestors immemorial did. And that there is something about the male contribution that uh, is, you know, deep in us. And if we don't feel that kind of work purpose, and value, uh, then we're lost. There's yes. a part of us that's lost. Yes. And that's what's happening to boys. And that's, you know, the upside of modernity. Women, on the other hand, are finding their power. Yes. And, you know, they're, of course, overblowing it and, you know, and, and telling some, you know, bad stories about it, particularly the, the oppression story. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but boys are, are just sort of lost here. Yes. And so, but we're not going to go back. We're not going to go back to dad's, uh, you know, the, to, to, this, to, 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 to these past structures. Mm -hmm. We're going to go forward. And, and I like what you talk about. I mean, that, that there are ways of thinking about this that where we can take care of boys, um, well, through men's boys clubs, men club. Why don't you talk a little bit about the, you know, what's the a healthy future look like here? Yes, well, I think the first step of a healthy future is, um, is recognizing that we've, we've created a purpose void. In the old days, we had senses of purpose and the, and the senses of purpose were that a, a boy to be a proud man would basically be disposable. He would prepare himself for disposability by being a hero in war. So heroic, and he developed a, an heroic intelligence. Heroic intelligence is the opposite of health intelligence. So preparing a boy to be disposable by being a hero in war, we prepared him to, by doing that, to do that by creating thousands of social bribes. Uh, the social bribe to call the boy a hero the social bribe of parental pride, the social bribe of promoting him every time he risked his life. Uh, so he got to be a general if he did it all really well. Um, and so, but the more he risked his life, the more he was valued. So- And the more he valued himself. And he totally, and the more he valued himself, the, he, he, he noticed that women fell in love with the officer and the gentleman, not the private and the pacifist. Um, he noted that the the women who the the first woman he was attracted to at school said first in ten do it again not first in ten please don't hurt yourself um, it's really ridiculous to be on that field getting concussions and spinal cord injuries don't you think maybe you should play flag football instead of, of tackle football that would be a lot safer for you and we'll prove it to you by going out with only the boys that play flag flag football or only the boys that don't play football at all um, no they said first in ten do it again meaning first in ten risk a concussion again. And and if you do that successfully um, and you go into the hospital, we'll go to the hospital and hope that you get better so that you can repeat the pattern that puts you in the hospital. And so, the, um, so that was sort of, the, that was heroic intelligence. And in the, in the, in the um, working area, the other possibility was that you're responsible for being the sole breadwinner unless you moved, were born into a family that had plenty of property, then we would accept marrying you um, for having plenty of property. But in some way, shape or form, if you were to have children with me, the woman who would like to have children, uh, you'd better darn well have a way of earning a living uh, that will make our children have the greatest number of opportunities possible. So women were protecting children by marrying men who were the best protectors. 
And so the males were obligated to be those protectors. Now, fortunately and unfortunately, we've created a purpose void. We no longer need it as many males to be, to be dying in war. And we no longer define masculinity by being a sole breadwinner. Um, we can have, a, a man can still be thought of as a man if he's sharing the breadwinner role. Um, but we still have, uh, so we have, so our sons that are born today don't have this clear social mandate. So when they don't have this clear social mandate to be disposable, which by the way, I think is wonderful, who wants to prepare our sons to, to be disposable? But when they don't have that clear social mandate, there is a void and that void, if there's also a void of fathering and the man not having, the boy not having a soul, a, a father as to guide him through a much more ambiguous situation, um, that, that so we need fathers more than ever before to dis, because fathers need to, to help their sons and their daughters do a combination of things that were never in history required before. And that combination is on the one hand, discover their unique selves as Mark Gaffney often talks about. Um, and that unique self is a powerful discovery that is a new gift of moder modernity to both our sons and our daughters. The women's movement is helping the girls discover their unique selves. Virtually nobody is helping boys do it. However, if you do discover your, your unique self, you're likely to focus on fulfillment, which will, as I mentioned before, lead you to less money, which will lead you to be less attractive to many women. And so the, you, so the boy has to learn, as do many girls, to both discover their unique self, but then also find a way of making a living, not just making a living enough to support himself, but if he's gonna be a father, most women are gonna be interested in a man who's making enough of a living to support both himself and more than both himself. Maybe her option to maybe stay home full-time with the children, which 40% of women do, or her option to be working part-time, which another 20% of women do, or her option to be working full-time, but be cutting back and uh, on, the, on the amount of hours she works full-time. And so he has to pick up the gap there, not just for himself and herself, but for as many children as they have and as many children as they think that they might have and all the emergencies to create a margin for error uh, if your children have um, special problems or special needs. And so boys uh, and females instinctively know that they can't marry the man who's that private and the pacifist um, if they, um, and they're oftentimes energetically not attracted to the man who's the private and the pacifist. They want a man who knows what he wants, who's planning, who's, um, uh, who's able to be performance oriented, but yet also able to be sensitive and caring and loving. So that's, so the, what, what the- Well, that's very exciting. Go ahead, yes, absolutely. That's but, a very exciting view of where we're going. Yes, where don't we see that with the younger generation? We see that and the opposite of that. So we have this enormous gap among boys in the younger generation. The ones that have fathers and mothers, and especially fathers that are involved, are probably what I call dad-enriched boys. And it goes without saying that they're also usually mother-enriched boys. And boys with both parents actively engaged, not one parent being away 90% of the time, the father usually, and then coming back 10% of the time, um, those boys are doing better than you and I could have imagined. I mean, I, I'm part really? of I, I'm part of a group called the Renaissance Gathering, which is a think tank that the Clintons belong to and people like that belong to. And the children of those people are more astounding than the people who got it, you know, selected to the Renaissance Gathering. Okay, I, I see those kids and I think, yeah. wow, where'd you come from? Yes, and you know, obviously the types of kids that are the sons and daughters of um, people that are attracted to integral theory are usually extremely brilliant. Amazing. And when we, and we look at them and say, I could not have figured that out at that I, age. I was not only close, not close to figuring it out. Close to that. And I, for me, you know, I'm supposedly a thought leader. Well, not compared to some things at that, not at that age. I didn't start questioning things. Amazing. And, um, so that's exciting. But so then there's this whole other group, and there's this, and the dad-deprived group. The dad-deprived boys are almost, um, not invariably, but it's a very high percentage are having significant motivation problems. And I, I call it in the boy crisis book, 
an uncommon wisdom of boys. So I think in Japan, they articulate this best. Um, among boys that, um, boys have looked at their fathers and they have used a word called karoshi, K-A-R-O-S-H-I. Karoshi is Japanese for meaning either death at the desk or death from overwork, depending on how you translate it. And so boys have said to themselves, do, do I want to die from overwork or die at my desk? Um, and then the, a woman only be interested in me if I do that. Um, she wants a salary man. She wants an entrepreneur. I don't really want to be valued for that. So they've developed one of the most popular games in Japan, and the game is called Kuroshi. And the person who wins at Kuroshi, that is, gets the farthest in this world, is the one wins by offing himself killing himself. So they're basically saying that victory in the old school male is not about power. It's about the ultimate statement of powerlessness, death. And so... The, and, and without any of the heroism. Without, without Yes. Well, what you... No, uh, they're slightly more subtle. What you, dad, think of as being a hero and what you, dad, think of as making you lovable and what you dad think of as making yourself respectable is all a bunch of bs it's not power it's powerlessness such powerlessness that i'd rather that if you really make your life spent climbing up that ladder a ladder that you've never even thought about whether you want to be at the top of but you've just done it because other people have told you you'll have more power and respect if you've done it then you have followed the social bribes to your own death. That's what the meaning of Kuroshi is as a game and as, a, as what I call the uncommon wisdom of boys and why fathers are so needed and why mothers and fathers need to be working together at things like family dinner night where there is, that is structured in a way that there's no electronics, where there's discussion by everybody at the table without being censored. You said that this was the number one corollary to a healthy boy was one or two nights a week of family dinner, right? Yes. Um, the first involvement of the father, not just theoretical and mon mon monetary producing, but involvement of the father in the boys' and girls' lives. And in a way that, and we were talking at the, at the beginning of the show, we all want our sons uh, and to have respect for, our, for daughters and for women. And so discussing at that table, what does respect mean? Does respect mean um, sort of thinking of women as extremely fragile? It, or does respect mean thinking of women as extremely strong? Is the message, I am woman, I am strong, or I am fragile, I am wronged? What does the Me Too movement translate into? So what's the answer? The answer is let's all talk about it together. And let's not talk about it in a way that has political correctness thought police censoring anything that the son or daughter says or having the daughter or son res respond in negative convulsions to the other one's perspective. But let's have uh, train our sons and daughters to, to seek and facilitate every idea that everyone at the table thinks about and then begin to invite some people over from the community that can see that there is that, that this is the way that things are talked about. So this is the beginning of creating a framework that makes nothing inherently bad, but invites everyone to be integral in their thinking. I, I say what I feel. I want to hear what my sister feels. I want to feel what my, hear what my mother and father feel, and, I, and the mother and father and each person at that family dinner table um, doing that with each other. Well, that is an integral practice in and of itself. Yes, exactly. To deeply see mm -hmm. and be seen. Yes, yes, precisely. As, as a unique manifestation of God. Yes. Or whatever. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and and to and it really is at the deepest level a manifestation of a, a broader term definition of God in the sense that it's it's very and this is what we were created to be every the potential for everything, yeah. and our grandparents have created enough economic survival, especially here in the United States, to be able for us to afford a luxury. When we judge our grandparents because they don't have the emotional wherewithal, the um, the ability to communicate in a way that 
um, is listening in its orientation and facilitative. When we judge our grandparents for not having that, I would encourage us to sort of get on our knees and pray uh, and praise the ground that our grandparents w walk on to have made our life so uh, able to handle survival that we can even talk about things being integral. Uh, Warren, that's ancestor worship. That's integral, man. Yeah. Right on. That's why I say Ken and I are soulmates. And <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so that does bring us here and now to this problem, which you well lay out in this book in terms of charts and graphs and all of these ways that boys are falling behind in education and health and social and suicide and all of it. And, and some of them aren't going to get dads. Mm -hmm. What else is there? I mean, what can we do? Really important question. So there are many, first of all, single moms should know that if there is the potential of a man in a picture that you might feel is sort of doesn't consider the children's feelings, really read the boy crisis to see the difference between a maternal definition of an abusive, narcissistic, irresponsible father versus what may be in that man's mind and what may be his unconscious considerations that have not been articulated to you. So the father that roughhouses, as we talked about before, may feel like just one more child to monitor. Um, but, from, but when you understand, which he will not usually say, and therefore you're not at fault because women can't hear what dads don't say, um, is, the, is, the, is what the function of that roughhousing is. He may seem mean for requiring the boy to finish the peas before he has the ice cream. Understand what the functions of that are. He may seem irresponsible by going back and by taking your son to um, a school and dropping him off um, to do a pickup game where he maybe eventually gets into a fight with somebody else on the, on the, on the, um, at, the at the playground. And you may say, ah, oh, he's so narcissistic. He went back and watched the NFL game. Uh, he cares more about the game than he does about the kid, my, the son. I just can't in good responsibility um, leave him uh, attending to our son or our daughter alone. And maybe in that father's mind is that, th that when he gets involved in the pickup game and if he gets involved in a fight, that he would like to, the dad, be able to process what led to that fight um, and have the boy take responsibility for choosing different people to hang out with, to choosing different ways to hang out, to pick up the red flags of what dangerous um, colleagues are and to work with that. And he'd rather, have it, he'd rather have the child risk doing those things that got the child in temporary trouble so that the child, the father can be there to move him through that process. Yeah. Now, <laughs> we talk about the difference between mass <coughs> Mas masculine compassion and feminine compassion. Yes. yes. Uh, one being challenging, mm -hmm. one being supportive. Yes. And exactly. um, we and need what both. Do, what do the ch next words out of my mouth? What do the children need? They need both. They need both mother and father have unconditional love for their children, but it's expressed very differently. Unconditional love is often expressed by mom to a greater degree with unconditional approval. Unconditional love by dad is often expressed by conditional approval, um, but always knowing that he's, he loves unconditionally. And part of his loving unconditionally is the responsibility to get into tension modality with the son and the daughter so that the child learns to have that little bit of a social bribe to do the right thing and get the father's approval by doing the right thing. But the father loves just like the mother loves. It's just right. that the mother's love is more apparent. And so, but you, your question was different than that. The question well, was- Well, the question was, so the, the, mom, if, 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 not, if not a father, a father figure, um, go on. Yes. So here's part of what I studied was what father, what's the best way to, to, to look at what can make a child have a good alternative role model if it cannot be a, a biological father. Second is um, a stepfather that's involved a great deal. However, the normal dynamic of a stepfather leads to the mother being in charge of the stepfather, the mother being the boss, the stepfather doing what the mother um, says and the father, stepfather only becoming an advisor. So I have an in-depth section in the boy crisis on how to avoid the slippery slope from becoming an equal stepdad and therefore 
uh, to, down to just an advisory position and why stepdads who are just advisors end up withdrawing from the process of being really good stepdads. Yeah. One thing. Let's say a dad and a stepdad are not in the picture for whatever reason. Um, the Cub Scouts have done very good studies on what happens when a boy is involved for two or more years in the Cub Scouts and attends consistently. The character development that is, that is part of growing up as a Cub Scout is very positive and can really help um, do the, the most important thing that we want for our sons, which is to develop character and to develop integrity and loyalty, but loyalty that's questioned, but not rebelliously questioned. Uh, second, Boy Scouts are an extension of that. Third, Ys, YMCAs and YWCAs are beginning to develop programs for young boys. Um, so are um, um, the boys clubs. Um, so our Mankind Project is doing some very good stuff now for younger boys. Uh, these are really good programs that uh, I would encourage. I, I would love to see that. I, I love the Mankind Project and the mm -hmm. way they get into nature and the way they get primal. And uh, I think that would be so helpful to a kid. It's such an initiation, right? It really is. And the Mankind Project used to be more adult male oriented, but it's now extending its um, its outreach to younger males as well, which is extremely needed. And it's, it's tendency to connect both with nature and with dad or the lost dad or the hurts with dad, um, make it an, ex, uh, ex, it's probably the program from which I have heard the highest percentage of people feeling extremely oh, really? uh, well facilitated toward a, a healthier masculinity than any other single program. Yeah, and I can see why, you know, it, yeah. it just, it has an X factor. Uh, so, but, but, you know, basically, um, you know, the, the, the bigger thing that's happening is awareness itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's just like we don't smoke in a closed car with kids like mm -hmm. my parents did. I just mm -hmm. would never do that or in, a, in an airplane. And now the idea of a boy being uh, without a masculine figure, uh, it, it starts to feel like that's there's something wrong here. Yes, yes. And then the next question becomes, how do we then... If, if, if our boys need a new sense of purpose to fill this purpose void, what are their, how do we create that new sense of purpose? One of the ways is just as we have, the women's movement has made it a sense of purpose, an option for girls to have the sense of purpose of being a full-time uh, executive um, and or a scientist. A, a scientist or, you know, so women have now as a result of the women's movement, the options to work full-time, be with the children full-time, some combination of both. But most fathers, as they're getting um, older, uh, as, they, as they have children, um, don't have those options. They have the option to work full-time or work full-time or work full-time. And that's extremely um, narrowing for, for, for boys. And so we have to sort of um, help our boys expand those options. So how do we do that? One of the ways that boys have always responded is to be thought of as a worrier. So let's create a concept called Father Warrior. And, um, and Warrior, W-A-R-R-I-O. -R -R yes, yes, yes. Not the fighter. R -R -R -R. Yes, I have a way of saying war. <laughs> yes, I want to make sure that's yeah, clear. We're like warrior, right? Yes. yes. And so a father warrior is, um, and so how do we create a father warrior? Remember, first of all, that, that boys are willing to die in all order to be called a warrior. Hallelujah. And if they're willing to die to become a warrior, they, they, what, what, what did they get in exchange for that? They got respect. They got honor. They got called heroes. So when we, we, they got called warriors. And so if we, if we are saying to our sons, um, this is one of the most respectable things you can do in the new era, jobs, careers will change multiple times. The one thing that will not change for your lifetime is parenting. Um, when I um, talk about in the Boy Crisis book how I met this man at a party who approached me and said that he joined one of the men's groups that I formed and this men's group had an enormous impact on his life. And I said, how so? And he said, well, I gave up my job um, to spend five years raising my son, which I did because um, I, I was so preoccupied with my career uh, the first time around that I had not connected with my first, my son, and I had not connected with my wife that led to a divorce. And now I've gotten remarried, um, moved here. And my wife 
uh, now has told me that she's not only pregnant, which I knew, but that we're going to have a son. And he said to the men's groups, and I feel this enormous hole in my heart for having um, neglected and abandoned my former wife and, and my son. And I don't want to repeat the process, but I'm doing really well with my business. And I have a lot of contracts and that I can't um, just get rid of. And so the men's group um, that, you, that, that you started, Warren, um, it, it, has, it said to me, uh, they, the guys in the men's group said, have you talked to your wife about a way out of this? Would she be approving of this? And he said, no, I'm sure that wouldn't be okay. And he sa they said, um, do not sell your wife short before you talk with her. So he said, I talked with my wife and my wife said, John, whatever you want to do, you do. Um, I, you've earned enough money. We can live on less. No problem. And so he said, well, the problem was not money. The problem is that what, what I own owns me. I have all these legal contracts. I can't get out of them. So men who are poor have one set of things. Men who are well-connected and have all these contracts feel that they're owned by what they own. So he said, I started to work with the men's group on, and my wife on getting out of these contracts. And as I'm talking with this guy now for about an hour or so at this party, um, somebody comes up to me. I had just come back from my first book tour and a guy is standing at the table and says, can I have your autograph? And I go up and reach for his autograph to give him an autograph and actually feeling kind of nice that I was being asked for an autograph. And he said, um, actually, I was looking for his autograph, not yours. And so this guy next to me signs his name really quickly. So he, it was signed so quickly that I knew it was, must be somebody who was fairly well known. And he said to me, so I said, well, what's your last name? I said, I don't have a TV, so I don't really know who's who on these things. And he said, John, my name's John, that's just fine. Let's just continue the conversation. And I said, well, that's fine too, I'd love to, but what is your last name? And he said, Lennon. And I said, John Lennon, let's see, aren't you a singer? And he goes, yes. And I said, well, are you, are you with the singing group? I'm feeling proud of myself. I didn't have a TV and I didn't pay attention to these things. And he goes, um, yes, I'm with the singing group. I said, what's the name of the group? And he goes, the Beatles. And then I knew I was, how ignorant I was. I've heard of them. Yeah, you've heard of them, yes, exactly. And no. but the point there was that here was a man who had the most enviable career in the world. And he wanted in his heart of hearts to give up that career, not he had already left the Beatles. So it wasn't a matter of, I wasn't responsible for him leaving the Beatles. So I'll get that clear. Um, but he had a solo career that had been doing very well. And he was willing to give up that solo career that was doing very well and unwind all his contracts for five years of raising his son um, and Sean. Which, which he did famously. Which he did, and, yes. And, and, and it's interesting to hear that a men's group that you started were part of was instrumental in that. That's really cool. Well, yeah, it is. It is actually cool and oh, it was fun. Um, and it's really, uh, but the, uh, and, and I hope though that the important message there is not missed, which is that, that sometimes there's a feeling that, oh, a man who would take care of his children full time must sort of be a loser or less than a full man. Right. Or, less, or not really be able to do that well in his career. So he chooses this secondary sort of way of being useful, which is yeah. raising children. Well, here is a man who had probably the most enviable career of any human being in the world of about that age. And he um, gave it up, not because he had to, but because he knew mm -hmm. that the deeper value was raising his son and i asked him uh, when i met him it was almost the son well, was almost two it's, years it's really going to be interesting to see that be an, a, a full-on option for men yes yes exactly and it and it means many things that we can do so at home so example um your your son and your daughter um maybe one is maybe let's say your son is um a little bit older than your daughter um have instead of feeding your daughter um when she's very young and an infant um, help your son learn how to feed your daughter. Help your son learn how to do the caretaking. Um, and when it comes to babysitting time, instead of just once that son is prepared and, uh, and, and feels good about how, care, how able to, to care for children she is, when somebody says, um, I need a babysitter, instead of just um, uh, suggesting your daughter, suggest that son who you've been trained to, to do the caring. Uh, when you have a babysitter, when your son is, and daughter are young, maybe your daughter's older than your son, have a male over to do the babysitting so that your son gets the sense that males do this type of thing, not just females. In school, get, start with in first grade, 
having our son and daughters be able to learn how to communicate. Communication should be as core to the curriculum from first grade on as, um, as math and science and reading. Uh, marriages and life fails because of poor communication much more than it does from any subject we learn in school. And so this has to become a new core part of our curriculum. As boys learn to communicate more receptively and openly and develop their emotional intelligence and think of it as being a man to do so, and let me just spend a moment on that. Being a man to do so is where masculinity will go to in the future because as women earn more money, they will want something from men other than earning more money. They'll want, they'll want emotional intelligence from men to fill that void, to make the, the, to make the man useful in their life, but also useful as a father. Hallelujah. And, yes, and so this is really- um, This is great. This, this is the gift of modernity and the gift of, a, of um, uh, this is the way to turn the boy crisis into a boy opportunity and yeah. also a girl opportunity because who, which of us wants our daughters to be marrying a man who's unworthy of their love? Yeah. Well, it just, uh, you know, uh, honors every piece of the puzzle, the whole range of human, uh, it, you know, capacity and endeavor, and invites us to be who we are and, and make our way in a way that, you know, where it's all respected. Yes. And there's, it's all meaningful. Yes. Yeah. Uh, let me just ask you a couple of slightly tangential questions. Mm -hmm. Can a woman do, there are a lot of single women as mother, single mothers. Can, can a woman do it alone? Can she bring a masculine and a feminine compassion? compassion? Um, and what do you think of that? Is there or is it just a, there's one, or maybe even a man, could, could one person do both? Yes, one person can do both, but boy, it is really a hard job. The best way to think about one person doing both is to never have had children, because in theory, it really works well. <laughs> <And> the, um, <laughs> but in practice, that's me. It was, uh, well, I mean, it, the, and the, what to understand from this is women have taken the burden off of men of being the sole breadwinner. For heaven's sakes, let's take the burden off of women of being the sole parent. Being the sole breadwinner is oppressive. Being the sole bread parent is extraordinarily challenging. The many single mothers that I dated before I chose the woman who became my wife, or before she, some woman allowed me to choose her, uh, was the were they were the, among the hardest working people I knew but they almost all felt overwhelmed, exhausted, frustrated, and they often had problems with their children with discipline and so on. And the children, um, if you are able, so what we need to do is to develop in this culture an understanding that fathers, you are needed. Fathers, here is what you do differently. Here is the way to introduce what you do differently to um, a, a woman so she understands your value you have an obligation to understand your value and what you contribute and at the same time not be oppressive about your value being the only value, but to be listening to the value that she brings. And it's the tension between the you and she that does not mean that the tension means that you're bad parents. It's that tension that should be thought of as the checks and balances that are part of what I call checks and balance parenting uh, that allows women and men to communicate with each other and know that it's exactly their disagreements that will oftentimes end up benefiting the child. The mother that says, sweetie, I don't want you to climb the tree in the backyard now. You're too young, you might hurt yourself. And dad who says, okay, be careful, but climb the tree. And then mother and father get into a big argument about whether or not which is right. And both feel the other one is being irresponsible. Uh, the dad feels mom's being overprotective. Mom feels dad is being irresponsible in terms of sending the child into danger zone. So what do they do? They work out some compromise. Yes, you can climb the tree, but only if you dad are right under the tree in case the child falls, you can cushion the fall. And by the way, give me the cell phone um, so that you'll get <laughs> that. And so what the child ends up with 
is being able to climb that tree, which by the way, develops synapses and, and connects new neurons and increases in IQ by, do, by taking risks and knowing which risks to take and which ones not to take. But on the other hand, um, can be very dangerous if it's done too much and, and gone too far. And so that argument that seems to have been very uh, damaging needs to be reframed as this is our way of, of raising our child the most effectively by both of us listening to each other and getting to the best of what we both have to offer. Yes, and what a wonderful problem and what a wonderful process <laughs> if we hold it in that light. Yes, exactly. So guys, you are needed. You're needed to, but before you are needed, you need to know what your roughhousing contributes, what your boundary enforcement contributes, what your uh, tendency to go for children to go outside of their comfort zone. Uh, when the child has a, a teacher at school who uh, the child feels hates him or her, and the mother says, if, the if you feel mom and dad, if you feel that teacher hates you, I'll go talk to your principal because I don't want you to have a bad experience in, in your early childhood with education. And dad goes, Throughout life, young man or woman, you're going to have to learn to get along with people that you don't like and that don't, you don't think like you. So I want you to go out of your comfort zone to, to, to do that. Who is right? The, the, the communication about how to talk to your child about that, how to talk with each other about that, that's the right solution in there, how to talk to the teacher about it. Wow. How to facilitate a win-win situation. Yeah. Future that well, that sounds very integral. It's just, you know, finding the tr piece of the truth that everybody has and it's situational and we never know what it is, but we sort of duke it out and we, you know, hug it out yes. and we get there as best we can. Absolutely. We listen to it out and we, we start out with an inner assumption that the person who disagrees with us has something to offer that we can learn from. Here, here. And that's, you know, I, I think that's why I said, Ken and I, I feel are very soulmates in our in, integral intuitive um, intuitiveness. Yes. Well, it shines right through there, Warren. Mm -hmm. Hey, thank you so much for being a part of- pleasure. Yes, it has a great conversation. And if people are interested in more from you, uh, what should they do? Um, I've made it very simple because I couldn't remember anything more simple, um, more complex. Uh, just do warrenferrell.com and, um, and that'll go on to my website or just, you know, do boy crisis, either boycrisis.org or just boy crisis with Warren Farrell and you'll get right on the, um, you know, you'll see all the, the comments on the book. And if, you, if anyone who's listening to this finds that the boy crisis does not serve you well, um, just write me my... Um, uh, and uh, email me, I'll give you my address, and um, send me the book, and I'll send you your money back. Can't beat that. All right, Warren Farrell, thank you again so much. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on The Daily Evolver.